Welcome to Leading for a Legacy. I'm your host, Meredith Schweitzer. In this show, we ask, what makes a cultural nonprofit leader whose staff, board, and the community you serve actually want to follow? Join me as I unpack the leadership styles of some of the most influential museum directors and cultural sector nonprofit leaders across the nation, all to try to understand what it means to lead with your legacy in mind. My guest today is Lori Fogarty from the Oakland Museum of California. And if you have ever had someone who you really admire for a long time, and then you get the opportunity to talk with them, and they're just as amazing in person as you imagined they would be, that pretty much summarizes the conversation that I had with Lori. I love all the work that they're doing at the Oakland Museum in terms of how to really look at the projects that they do with an eye towards diversity, equity, and anti-racist practices. I love that I have the opportunity to share this conversation with you. I hope you enjoy it. Well, Lori Fogarty, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Welcome to Leading for a Legacy. Thank you. I'm delighted to be with you and to talk about leadership. As I was putting this series together, you've really been on my wish list to talk to because if if you're in the museum field and you are familiar with uh, movers and shakers, you know you're really at the top. So I'm I'm really excited for what we're about to get into. I'd find it really surprising if the people who are interested in this podcast in particular weren't already familiar with your institution. But for those who might not be, or people who um, who you maybe uh, are giving a, a first time introduction to the or organization. Um, can you give like a little bit of an overview of the mission and kind of the current direction of the museum? Sure. Happy to. Uh, yeah, the Oakland Museum of California is unique in that it is a multidisciplinary museum and we're all focused on California. So a museum of California art, history, and natural sciences. And we were founded in 1969, which a uh, very interesting time to be founded in the Bay Area. And we were founded as a city department, a department of the city of Oakland. And so there was always a very strong civic and educational mission to our work. And when we were founded, we were known as the Museum of the People. I mean, literally our building is across the street from the Alameda County Courthouse, where at the very moment the museum opened, the trial for Huey Newton, the founder of the Black Panther Party, the trial was happening and there were free Huey protests happening literally right outside our doors. And it's very much in that spirit that the museum was founded as a place of civic connection, community gathering, cultural celebration, and focused on California broadly, but particularly Oakland. So that has been in the DNA of the museum since the beginning. I joined the museum a little over 14 years ago. And what we have focused on is even deepening that commitment to community engagement and placing the visitor and community at the center of our work. And I would say that is an ongoing evolution. Over the last few years, we've really looked to articulate and even measure our impact on our community, our, our social impact. And certainly in the context of these last few months, we've become even more intentional about what it means to be an equitable, anti-racist museum. Tell me about kind of the size and scope of the museum. We have about a $16 million budget. 
uh, in a normal year. Also in a normal year, in the last few years, we've had a total audience of around 400,000 visitors to our campus. And we're a large campus. We are four city blocks, seven acres. So one of the very distinctive aspects of our campus and our building is that it is in a terraced indoor outdoor building, brutalist building designed by Kevin Roach. And so it really has a very California feel. And in fact, the architecture was designed to create this kind of community gathering place uh, in the heart of, of downtown Oakland. Mm. What's extraordinary is we have an enormous collection because of our multidisciplinary nature. We have a collection of close to 2 million objects, artifacts, and specimens, large photographic collection in particular. How has your staff grown over, you know, the last maybe decade or so? Well, our, you know, our staff is not that much larger than it has been over the last 10 years. We have a staff of about 125 FTE, full-time equivalent employees, and it's been at about that same level. Actually, 10 years ago, it was even a little larger because we were in the midst of a major reinstallation of our collection. So we had positions that were part of that specific project, mm-hmm. but we're at about 125. Like you said, you've been with the museum since 2006, and about a decade ago, in 2011, you all did a like a complete kind of reorganization. Um, and I think really, I don't know if it's since then, but certainly in in my mind since then, um, you all have really been at the forefront of conversations about museums as spaces that really put communities first. Um, and it's really interesting to hear about that the architecture, in fact, is uh, designed to sort of foster that. Um, I'd love to get into that a little bit more, mm-hmm. too. Um, I'm sort of curious about, you know, in each of these phases, I'm sure that your leadership style has really evolved. And um, in thinking about really this last year in particular, I mean, with the pandemic, with social unrest, with the economic issues that are going on, I'm, I, I'd love for you to share with us how you've been rethinking, or if you've been rethinking, what leadership really means through this year in particular. Yeah, it has been a real evolution. And, uh, you know, I would say when before 2011, I, I joined the museum, as you said, in 2006, and I was a city department head. I mean, I was, again, because the museum was a department of the city, I was a city department head along with the chief of police, the head of public works, and it was a very hierarchical structure. It was a civil service kind of structure at the museum. So very top down, uh, you know, Promotions through uh, the structure of the museum were very slow and laborious. When the museum was founded, it came together as three separate museums. There were small museums actually dating back to the early part of the 20th century, an art museum, a history museum, and a science museum. And they came together in the 60s to form the Oakland Museum. And in many ways, the museum, when I joined, operated as three small museums. Each department had curators, registrars, preparators. There was very very little collaboration. There was very little cross-functional work. So the real heart of the 2011 reorganization was to break down those silos. We had a very traditional organizational chart that looked like a rake. You know, it has the top and then it kind of has the various prongs down through the organization. And we very deliberately reorganized to create much of a much more collaborative cross-functional structure. So our org chart then shifted to look like a flower with at that point six. Now we have four centers and all of our major projects draw from 
from folks from all of the centers uh, with cross-functional work. So that was a, a big shift, a huge shift for us structurally and culturally to work in a kind of collaborative cross-functional way. What that meant and what that required was much more shared leadership. I, The executive team that I work with, which include the heads of each of those centers, the directors of each of those centers, we talk about our work really holding the whole of the institution, that I don't look to the the people that report to me as just being advocates and leaders of their own centers, but really holding the whole organization and looking to the success of the institution as a whole. And I would say this last year, these last few months have reinforced that for me even more, which is the importance of shared or distributed leadership. You know, I think it's almost counterintuitive or, or certainly counter impulse at this time, because in the moment of a crisis, like we were faced with in March when we had to close and we were faced with immediate decisions around, you know, health issues and safety issues and downsizing and economic crisis. The impulse, I think, of many leaders is to move into that command and control uh, form and really top down decision making and that sense of urgency that, you know, we have to make the decisions and we have to make them quickly. And instead, I've really worked to change that impulse to how do we bring different voices in and realize there's wisdom throughout the organization. And I've done a lot of reading about servant leadership and shared and distributed leadership. And it's uncomfortable. It's not easy. There are parts of it that I struggle with every day. And I think this is the moment to really explore that kind of leadership and those kinds of shifts in structure and culture for our organization. I love this idea of the flower uh, that you're talking about. And, uh, you know, I think that's in so many museums um, and other sort of cultural nonprofits, you have that rake formation and it does really reinforce siloing. I mean, you really do get the photo archives are only talking to the photo archives people or the development people are only talking to other development people or whatever. Um, What are the four in the petals in your institution? Uh, well, we love our acronyms. So, and and you know, some of this was was also really intentionally designed to not only break down some of the silos, but also to bring together functions that often don't work uh, in alignment in museums. Mm-hmm. So, the four are the Center for Experience Development and Collections, which includes all of the curators, along with positions we call experience developers, which are really the you know the visitor experts and the visitor advocates who work in absolute partnership with the curators, all of the collection staff, exhibition and exhibition production and preparation, and visitor evaluation. Mm. Uh, The second center is the Center for Audience and Civic Engagement, and that includes public programming, educational programming, visitor experience, and marketing and communications, which is, again, an unusual alignment of functions within one area. The other two are a little more traditional. One is the Center for Philanthropy and Institutional Advancement, and that's development and membership. And the fourth is the Center for Administration and Business Operations, which is facilities, finance, Finance. and IT. Yeah. So those two are a little more traditional, but I think the other, the what we call CEDC and CACE, C-A-C-E, are the two that there was real intentionality about bringing different functions together in ways that they typically don't work within a museum. With that structure, you know, what's something in that first sort of couple of weeks of of March, I guess I would focus on of the pandemic sort of really taking hold of institutions having to close and change their change their hours or change their methods. What's what's an example of how that 
structure kind of worked for you guys during that time? That's a really good question. And I would say what we're learning now is how that can, how we need to continue to reinvent that, um, Mm -hmm. that even the structures that we might've had pre pandemic, we're going to have to now look at in a different way. So I would say we're in process with that about what the shifts are. And I'll give one specific example where we're, where we're rethinking how we, some of our pre pandemic methodology, and that's around digital content. Mm-hmm. And this is, you know, of course, an area that every museum and you know many, many organizations are having to rethink. I would say digital engagement was not an area that we had given a lot of attention to. I mean, we, of course, have all of the standard kind of elements. We, ha- we do a lot of social media. We have a website. You know, we have those basic functions. But because our focus was so much more on engaging our community on site and on our campus and with our immediate neighborhood, we weren't putting a lot of resources or or a lot of effort into digital engagement. You know, that's shifting dramatically now. And so those traditional ways of d- exhibition development, program development, social media, and really the kind of digital work that a marketing department or marketing and communications does, that's all blurring now. You know, mm-hmm. uh, we, we can't produce uh, content on site with public programming, with large public events, or with exhibitions in the traditional way. So now we're starting to look at new ways to bring together these centers and work in new cross-functional ways around digital engagement. So I think it's worked for us in that we have a long-standing practice of cross-functional teams, of different expertise coming together, of exhibitions, for example, working with a, an exhibition team that includes all of the functions of the museum. So we're able to transfer some of those practices to this moment, but in brand new ways for us. As a communications person and a former curator myself, it's I always felt this tension between the people who were producing the content and the people who were making efforts to share content in a public way, either through, like you said, through social media or through campaigns or through um, the development team talking to donors about what was going on, that so many organizations have like a tension between those. So this idea of bringing those staff together in a way that they're working together anyway, I can imagine really eliminates a lot of that tension. It does. And, you know, I have to admit the tensions are still there. I I Hmm. think we're navigating them in new ways. And I think there's a lot of interest in how to both respect the expertise and acknowledge the expertise that that different staff members bring, you know, curatorial content expertise, marketing technique expertise, community engagement practices. So there's a lot of recognition of the fact that there is deep expertise in these areas and the game's changed and we have to think about it in new ways. So I would say we're navigating those tensions, but I I do think the fact that we've had some practice with this cross-functional work means that we're able to negotiate it in new, in, you know, I think fairly successful ways. Uh, Along that line, I think one of the things that, that you all are getting particularly recognized for right now, but has, is not new to you all, is this idea of kind of striving to be an equitable anti-racist organization um, that's really working with community. I'd love to hear you get into how you live that day to day. 
Yeah, I would say this has also been, definitely been a journey and one that has accelerated for us in the last few months. And, you know, again, I would say that our orientation toward being a, a community gathering place and a community resource uh, has been longstanding and very much a focus in the last few years. And I would say that has focused on listening to our community. And that's done in a lot of ways. Uh, so we do a lot of visitor evaluation. So we really understand who our visitors are. We get input on visitor satisfaction as, as a result of visitor evaluation. And now in the last couple of years, or at least before we had to shut down in March, actually measuring our social impact. We had created over the last several years a framework around focused on social cohesion, bringing communities and people together in greater trust, connection, and understanding. And we were measuring that. We also work with community collaborators on every major exhibition project. So whether that's advisory groups or co-creators of actual elements of the exhibition. So we've done a lot of listening to our community and bringing community input into our programming and audience development efforts. At the same time, we had done a lot of internal work uh, around building diversity within our staff, uh, building diversity within our board, a lot of capacity building around understanding equity, inclusion, and access with our staff. And I think like probably most organizations across the country and most museums, we still had a real moment of reckoning at the end of May, at the moment of the George Floyd murder, of the Breonna Taylor murder, and the protests that were happening so uh, actively all over the country and certainly in Oakland. And we heard from our staff that we needed to do more, that the culture of inclusion and anti-racism was one we needed to, to push on to really creating that culture much more actively and intentionally. And that's been a lot of the discussion that we've been having with the staff and with the board during this time of closure. We've also been doing a lot of internal work. I think the reckoning for a lot of us is that it has to be done at, at every level. It's that very personal level of learning and self-reflection and actually changing attitude and behavior individually, as well as then interpersonally with other others on our staff and, and with our board and community, and then the organizational structural work. So I think what it means, you know, living it every day, it begins individually, it begins personally. And I will say, speaking in the eye, looking at my own blind spots, looking at the places I have to grow and then really confronting and acknowledging the experiences of particularly BIPOC staff, and then moving that to that organizational and structural level. What have you all done to actually do that? Have you brought in consultants? Have you done internal workshops? Well, we we did it very intentionally. Yes, we brought in uh, facilitators. So I and our executive team had this moment at the beginning of June where we were moving in as you know many organizations into our new fiscal year that was to begin or did begin July 1st. And like a lot of institutions, knowing we had a lot of lost revenue that we would have to cut back on expenses. And you know the typical practice is for the handful of folks on the senior staff or executive team to go in a room and come up with a budget that identifies where the reductions are going to be. And realized that to do that at this moment was completely inequitable and completely antithetical to what we are striving to be as an institution. So we invited our full staff, anyone who wanted to participate, to engage in a process 
of priority setting and examining our priorities and identifying you know, recommendations and strategies uh, to move forward all with a lens of anti-racism. So we had over 50 people raise their hands to participate in this process, and it has been intensive over the last several weeks and has been supported through facilitation. So we were very fortunate to receive a grant from the Mellon Foundation through the Art Museum Future Funds initiative that they have launched, which is primarily supporting operating support and staff retention, but we did build in funds to that grant to specifically support our our initiative to move through this continuum of becoming a more anti-racist, equitable organization. And I am very grateful for that because having skilled facilitators to support this work has been crucial. You and I talked before we recorded today, and one of the things that kept coming up in my mind was in this era when you're just having to slash budgets really aggressively because of the pandemic, having the commitment to facilitation and to openness just really struck me. And thinking about having to do an organizational budget with 50 points of input uh, sort of blows my mind. (laughs) But, yeah, and it's, I but, will say again, it's been messy. It's been, just, yeah. you know, uncomfortable. Um, we're still working on that refinement, how those kinds of directions and priorities move into actual a real budget. And I think yeah. it will be an ongoing process, especially because, you know, none of us knows what the next few months is going to look like. And we're, you know, we're doing budgeting like we've never done it before. You know, it's more of a cash flow sort of analysis than it is a real budget and adjusting all the time. It's been a learning process for us, but I think the facilitation has has helped us develop tools now that we will be able to just keep using in the future. So interesting. What's something that came out of that multiple voices process that surprised you or that's really actually made you change a direction on a project or on a focus? Well, I think one of the things, I I don't know that it surprised me, but it really reinforced what I said earlier about how much wisdom there is throughout our staff. And there were folks, you know, these teams that came together to look at priorities were self-directed. We did not, I did not directly participate. We, I mean, I'm obviously participating as we move this forward, but we, we gave these teams a few weeks to really be self-directed and uh, without executive team presence, you know, taking out the positional power uh, focus and allowing and, and encouraging and supporting these teams to to develop their own direction and ways of working. And it was just amazing to see the brilliance of particularly younger staff and particularly BIPOC staff, um, several of whom have organizing experience and community organizing experience and, you know, applying those tools to this work. So that was reinforcing, but also eye-opening how much skill and wisdom there there has been um, in the room. And I guess the other, maybe not surprising, but again, inspiring aspect for me is I think many institutions, when they look at diversity and equity work, they kind of separate that as if it's a separate track of activity. You know, here's our diversity, equity, inclusion, and access roadmap, and here's our strategic plan, or here are our institutional priorities. And what we have been trying to do is really synthesize those so that, for example, bringing anti-racism equity practices into daily work. So we have had a team working on the planning for our safe reopening, and it has been cross-functional, you know, from facilities and exhibitions and visitor experience and HR and IT. So very cross-functional. 
And they began their process putting in place principles for the museum's reopening to take into consideration equity and anti-racism. So it's not, you know, separate. It is a lens with which we can look at all of our work. And that has been really exciting to me that it, it it's not a separate kind of track of activity. It is the work that we do every day. And it's just bringing real intentionality and tools to that work. So unpack that for me a little bit. So what's an example of something that they, in the reopening, that is specific to equity? Well, who are, I, it's really thinking about who is most impacted. So the thought that decisions were not going to just be made again from the top down, but thinking about who are the folks that are, one, internally, the staff who are most impacted by opening, which is the frontline staff. So how do we include the voices of frontline staff to ensure that their concerns are addressed, that they have a voice in what a safe reopening looks like, that they're acknowledged with additional pay you know, for appreciation? We don't call it hazard pay because we believe that we are dramatically reducing the actual hazard and the kind of you know, characteristic or the criteria for hazard pay and the broader workplace is not really uh, applicable for our staff, but it is recognizing that they are exposing themselves to a different level of risk. So Mm -hmm. really thinking about impact and similarly thinking about impact for, you know, the visitors and the communities who are disproportionately impacted by, by COVID. How do we think about these visitors, whether it's ensuring that we're providing information on, on safety precautions in multiple languages? So, you know, those kinds of things have been, have been considered as part of the reopening in a very intentional way. I think that's so great, that that layering of paying attention to not just let's get open for the sake of being open or, you know, really thinking through those those areas is really interesting. Something that really strikes me about the Oakland Museum is this ongoing, like we said earlier, this ongoing kind of community work. And I think that the whole definition of what commute, quote unquote community work is has has so dramatically shifted in the last decade or two. And I love, I, you know, I was reading about the work that you're now doing for Art for the Movement, this collaboration mm-hmm. with the Black Cultural mm-hmm. Zone, the Oakland Art Murmur. Uh, it seems like there's several Black-led organizations and artists. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it's all sort of geared towards preservation and stewardship of the artwork that's coming out of protests, um, particularly in Oakland and particularly in response to kind of the police brutality, uh, the issues that are really at the forefront right now. Can you talk to us a little bit about how you, as the leader of the organization, have looked at how you're dedicating resources to this particular partnership? Financial resources, yes, but also like your organizational resources beyond just finances, um, your expertise and things like that. Can you talk to that a little bit? Yeah, I would love to talk to that about that because it's been one of the most profound experiences for me uh, as a leader and also just a real bomb to my soul, honestly, <laughs> uh, and I think for our staff as well during this period. So, you know, right after, again, the, the George Floyd murder and the protests that were happening there, it's just amazing. The painting on the plywood that is, you know, the barricades at in front of stores and businesses all over downtown Oakland. And it happened very quickly. And it was just this amazing proliferation of art and creativity. And, and right away, we were hearing from members and from elected officials, can the museum 
help, you know, in some way to preserve this or, or, you know, going directly to the museum should be exhibiting these and the museum should be collecting these. And, you know, it was in the middle of this protest. And what happened kind of organically is several folks came together. Our, uh, Oakland Art Murmur, which is a wonderful nonprofit that supports artists and, and nonprofit art spaces in Oakland. The Black Cultural Zone, which is a, a new and emerging coalition of Black artists, creatives, entrepreneurs, businesses, really designed to foster Black achievement, Black success, Black health and livelihoods uh, in East Oakland. And uh, a couple of us on the museum staff. And The interesting thing is before we even really began logistics for how do we preserve this work, we developed principles about what this was about and that this was much more than a, you know, saving murals or looking at this as an art initiative. We call it art for the movement because the the real intent is that these are artifacts that honor and commemorate Black lives that have been lost and that they present an opportunity to create a platform for dialogue and for moving toward racial healing. So what became very clear to me and to those of us at the museum was this was not about preserving work that we would then bring into the collection or figuring out when we would create an exhibition using this work. It was really about the museum being in service to this effort and to providing what we can in terms of expertise and resources to this Black-led effort. So what that has involved over the last few months, and we meet weekly. We have representatives of these organizations and artists affiliated with the, with the artwork meeting weekly, is first to just try to mobilize logistically. We wanted to try to make sure that any of these works that were being taken down by the businesses or by the city departments, a lot of these works have been on city-owned buildings, City Hall and buildings right around City Hall, that we were able to retrieve those, track those, and preserve those and store those. So that was kind of the first order of business. And it was it was complicated because we don't didn't always know who the artists were. We didn't always know who the property owners were. So that's been a lot of logistical, just kind of tracking what's out there, who are the business owners, who are the artists, and getting the word out that if you are looking to remove these and you want them preserved, here's how to reach us and here's how we'll do this. Interestingly, I would say 85% of these are still up, particularly the city-owned buildings. They were removed rather quickly and we were able to retrieve those. But what we've been working on now is a series of programs, dialogues about this um, effort. And you know, these are virtual programs. Our production team at the museum has supported that effort because most of the, you know, the artists are, are I mean, we're paying them for participation in the program, but they're, you know, they're doing this without compensation otherwise. And many of the folks in, in the Black Cultural Zone are volunteers. So we've been able to lend some, you know, just program production resources to that. And the hope is that the first kind of public reconstituting of this work will happen at a space that the Black Cultural Zone uh, sort of overseas that they call Liberation Park, and that we would produce our reproductions of these as as part of an outdoor space to really make sure because these most of these are not in East Oakland, which is, you know, very much the center of Black life in Oakland. They're downtown. So our exhibition teams have been working to try to help support what that, you know, just from a production standpoint, from a re- reproducing photographs, artist rights issues, photographer licensing. So it's been a lot of logistical support. And I, I think that at some point, the museum may exhibit examples of these. At some point, the museum may bring 
some of these works into our collection, but it is actually about us responding to community need and to be in service to community rather than how do we get the mu- the community to support what the museum is doing. It seems like such a shift. I mean, it, I can imagine it's tempting to say, how do we make this a moment for people to congregate at the museum around these topics, but it's almost the reverse of that. It's like, how do we take what the museum is and make that available to the places where the history is happening? Exactly. Exactly. I love that. It's been an amazing opportunity to meet great artists that I wouldn't have met otherwise. It's been, it's been a learning experience, uh, I think for all of us, but it has been nothing but positive and inspiring. The other day I was listening to something that was basically saying like, since early 2020, we've all been just like being chased by a tiger. We've just been running, (laughs) running, running, running. And whether that's like trying to figure out revenue streams or trying to figure out how to engage your staff remotely, you know, or shifting your leadership style because you can't pop into someone's office or you can't call that last minute meeting because people have their kids at home or whatever it is. And especially I think in thinking about this conversation that that we're having because you're so centered in a place where cultural upheaval is all around and the projects that you're focusing on in terms of activism and um and awareness are so emotional and heightened you know we're all exhausted and i'm sure that personally you have moments of that i'm sure you've felt that from your staff it does feel like though maybe it's this hopefully this kind of post election mm-hmm. there's going to be a moment of breath um, or a moment to take a pause or to do some self-care. I'd love to hear from you. What What are you doing as a leader to kind of to take care of yourself, but also to take care of your teams, you know, mm-hmm. right now in this kind of crazy moment? What does that look like for you guys? Yeah, I mean, you. It, it's very true. There is a level of exhaustion and real trauma in this moment. I guess for me personally, I have to be very deliberate about finding space for taking walks. And, you know, I'm a swimmer, so I I swim several times a week. I was lucky to be in a place where swimming pools um, opened a few months ago, really trying to recharge and rest over weekends. I would love to say I've been able to take some time off. It's been very limited, but I try to find space for that in in real self-care. I have amazing networks that I have plugged into, and I think that that is crucial right now. I've never seen anything like this moment of just people, colleagues reaching out to each other and creating different kinds of networks and and building those bridges to trusted colleagues to share what this time is like. I think with our, our staff, we have had to be very, very deliberate to give people space and to try to say, we need to take some things off the table. We need to try to create opportunity for people to slow down a little bit, that we need to build into even our meeting structures, time for people to use tools that we've been learning through our anti-racism process, whether that's breathing, whether that is actually giving people an opportunity to speak personally about what they're going through, what they're trying to let go of, what they're trying to bring into the room. So actual real healing practices that are part of many of our staff meetings and gatherings right now. I think I am and we are at the museum very attuned to this. And it's hard because you want to balance giving people that space, recognizing that exhaustion, 
allowing time for the healing and the relationship building to happen. But there's also, there is, you know, the sense of urgency of we need to open, we've got to take action on these plans. So we're constantly toggling between those and just trying to be present to keeping it in our minds all the time that take a deep breath. We don't have to always rush. One of our facilitators uses the phrase, move at the speed of trust. That's one that, uh, that's a mantra we are using a lot these days. So if someone wants to get more involved with the Oakland Museum of California or is interested in the projects that we've been talking about today, what, what's the best way for people to get in touch with you all? Sure. Well, definitely our website, uh, www.museumca.org. That does have information on the partnership for Art for the Movement with the Black Cultural Zone, including the guiding principles I mentioned. We also have uh, our statement around our commitment to anti-racism and Black Lives matter. And that includes a link to resources that have been shared by the museum staff, readings, places for people to support Black-owned businesses, um, that kind of thing. So I encourage people to go there and then follow us on social media. We're active, uh, very active now on social media, you know, share all of our program information. And certainly at the point where we are ready to reopen, uh, we'll have information about that, as well as all of the precautions we're taking to ensure people can come back and come to our place of healing safely and securely. Thank you so much, Lori. This has been such a great conversation. I really appreciate you spending the time with us. Um, And uh, we'll have you back for a quick fire next week. And I hope that people really do take the time to head to your website, learn more about these projects and resources, and think about how the ideas that we've been exploring today can really apply to your own circumstances. So Lori, thank you so much. My pleasure. Meredith, it's great to talk to you. And I wish you and, and all your listeners the very, very best. 